Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast, where we share the stories of the Strong Towns movement in action. I'm Rachel Quedno. A few weeks ago, we announced a series of five core campaigns that we're going to be focusing on over the next few years at Strong Towns, including ending highway expansion, encouraging transparent local accounting, advocating for safe and productive streets, pushing for incremental housing, and ending parking minimums. None of these are new issues for us, but we'll be placing a special focus on them and providing a ton of resources and action steps that you all can take in your cities to make these Strong Towns visions a reality. Today's guest, Jonathan Kurth, is here to talk about that last campaign issue, ending parking minimums. He is the Development Services Director for the city of Fayetteville, Arkansas, one of the first U.S. cities to eliminate commercial parking minimums. These are laws that mandate the amount of parking spaces that a business needs to provide. They are on the books in many U.S. cities, and they reach a point of absurdity. For example, two spots per lane at the bowling alley. Why? Who knows? They're an overreach of government that harms local businesses, small-scale developers, homeowners, and renters. Luckily, a growing movement of cities is smashing these outdated laws, and you can see the full list on our map of cities that have ended parking minimums. I will put a link in the show notes. Jonathan will talk a lot more about why these regulations are a problem and why Fayetteville decided to put an end to them, not only because they were harming business opportunities, but also because they were leaving important historic buildings downtown vacant or at risk of demolition simply because those places were built before cars or parking minimums were a thing, so they obviously don't have parking lots. Jonathan also talks about the slow but important results that have come about since minimums were eliminated in Fayetteville several years ago, including new restaurants opening, vacant lots getting filled, and city staff having a much quicker process to approve new permits for developments and business startups. At the end of the day, eliminating parking minimums is about getting rid of a law that's just unnecessary. Let the market, let business owners, let property owners decide what parking is needed. Otherwise, you'll end up with empty lots instead of productive places. So here's my conversation with Jonathan Kurth. So Jonathan Kurth, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It is good to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to being the development services director for Fayetteville? Sure. Like a lot of city planners or people with city planning backgrounds, I didn't come to it by a direct route. It was pretty circuitous. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, always had an appreciation for the, the built environment there. It's got a pretty firmly gridded street for the most part, at least in the older parts of town. And uh, and as I began living in other places, I saw how other cities began to develop. Uh, when I went off to college, uh, I thought I had a real passion for international policy. Uh, it turned out I just had an interest for policy, not not the international side of it. Uh, and so when I uh, moved up to Kansas City a few years later, uh, I started taking some courses at the, the, the local university there, found my way into uh, geographic information systems, GIS. Uh, and then from there into urban geography and from there into their uh, nascent uh, land use program, their planning land use program. And then went on from there to a, a graduate program at the University of Kansas, which is much more of a policy program than it is a, 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 an urban design program, which is a perfect fit for me. 
And from there, I I spent about 10 years in Kansas City at that point, and the opportunity arose to move to Fayetteville, Arkansas, which I have much more of a a passion for the kind of outdoors that Fayetteville has to offer, like canoeing and hiking and biking, as opposed to fishing and such in the Kansas City area. Just been uh, working with the city of Fayetteville ever since then. It, It was a very attractive municipality for me for a lot of reasons, not just the the selfish uh, outdoors interests, but also that's very, very forward thinking, especially regionally, uh, maybe not in the national scope, but uh, we like to think so. And I could tell uh, during my interview process that they had a, they'd really embraced the culture of change, not just sitting on their hands and accepting what we've been doing for decades. And I I think that's probably uh, a product of it being a college town. You can see that in a lot of places uh, across the country where a lot of really overeducated people don't want to leave their 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 alma mater, so they settle down and they develop a passion for for municipal government. So you started to tell us a little bit about the city of Fayetteville, but for those that aren't super familiar, you know, what are some of the what are some of the best things about the community, and what are some of the challenges that you all are are working on right now? Sure, uh, the city of Fayetteville is uh, about ninety-two thousand people. About a third, or less than a third, of those attend the University of Arkansas or work at the University of Arkansas. Uh, it's the big land-grant university in the state of Arkansas. Uh, oddly, it was located in the northwest corner of the state where we are, kind of in the the foothills of the Ozark Mountains, as you uh, head east from the Oklahoma Plains. It's got a, a history that a lot of cities have probably experienced, or that I've seen experienced. There's a very tight urban core to it, uh, a lot of uh, the traditional street grid and traditional urban design or building layouts in the, in the middle parts of the city. But then as it branched out over time, it became uh, increasingly low density, increasingly spread out, increasingly auto-oriented. Um, so one thing that uh, Fayetteville has really struggled with or, or worked to undo in the last 20 years now or so was, was that auto-centric development pattern. Uh, that again, a lot of cities have seen. And we, uh, an interstate was put through the region, and of course, so that fed onto it as well. We have some challenging topography that doesn't really lend itself to a tight street grid, uh, but we've definitely recognized some of the ill effects that can result from from sprawling out like that and, and start to undo them by just in, uh, increasing density wherever it's appropriate or allowing density wherever it's appropriate, and 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 really encouraging the intermixing of uses rather than having all the land uses segregated amongst themselves, basically forcing everybody to drive anywhere they want to go. So along the lines of helping the city become a little bit less uh, totally dominated with cars, um, in 2015, I know the city of Fayetteville removed parking minimum requirements, and maybe it was one of the first cities in the country to do that. Can you tell us about the process of making that happen? And how did people advocate for that change? Was there pushback that needed to be addressed in the process? It, it actually began kind of a kind of not not grassroots, but I guess to steal y'all's theme, it was kind of a bottom up proposal. Really, it started uh, in the planning division to some extent. Um, that's getting back to what I was talking about earlier: how the city has really empowered its planners to get roll of their sleeves and really get into the code. The planners at the time really saw a need where there were a lot of undeveloped or vacant properties, particularly commercial properties, that just were not turning over. Uh, They were in ideal places with regards to street access and and our growing trail systems access. They couldn't quite find themselves into uh, into new businesses and, and new operators. 
And so as the planners began talking to some of these applicants more and more, it really came down to our minimum parking requirements that, that Fayetteville had instituted. Uh, and they had been there for decades, like with many cities, and then they'd remain unchanged for decades like they had for many cities. It's just something that uh, a lot of planners take for granted and they just continue to implement uh, because somebody decades prior felt that they were the appropriate numbers. Uh, but, but what our planners found were that uh, in a lot of these cases, they were just uh, having the opposite effect. They weren't, they weren't ensuring an adequate amount of parking. They were preventing the ability of our, our urban fabric to continue to develop and redevelop over time. Uh, so many of these properties couldn't uh, uh, support new occupants because they didn't meet their baseline parking ratios. If you had a restaurant, you had to have X number of parking spaces per table. If you had a, a CPA, you'd have to have X number of parking spaces for however many square feet uh, your building had. And many of these buildings uh, built in uh, often towards the, the early years of vehicles didn't have any on-site parking. It was just a building that was 100% of the property's lot and, and that just made it impossible to redevelop. Uh, so in response to that, the, the planners just began asking the baseline question like, well, do, do we really need this? Is this something that we need to dictate or is this something that we can just let the market control? Do we really need this? That's a question that every city should be asking. Um, and we're slowly seeing that change happen. How long did the process take to actually, you know, get it approved to remove those parking minimums? It was about a year, I would say. But I mean, that, that wraps up a lot of those early conversations into it as well. At the time, we were fortunate to have a very uh, urban-leaning city council. They had been the city council that adopted our most recent comprehensive plan that made infill the city's highest priority. And so they understood what these perhaps well-intentioned uh, ordinances were, were the impacts they were having on the, the urban landscape. We're getting surface parking lots that outnumbered uh, building square footages. Just think about your typical Walmart. Uh, and so the planners, when they brought it forward, uh, the proposal was uh, originally just to basically strike the, the non-residential parking requirements for businesses. Uh, and then it kind of morphed from there. I think uh, the, the city attorney's office had a lot of concerns uh, Arkansas has very strong property rights laws and standards, and there was fear from our city attorney's office that if we were to take away this requirement and the sky falls, there was no way we could re-implement the requirement because at that point, it's effectively taking a portion of a property's value by saying that now you have to use that part of your property for parking where, where we previously said it may not be necessary. So after some deliberations and discussions, uh, what we eventually came up with was that there is a parking maximum now. We basically completely flipped on our, our parking standards. So all the minimums basically became maximums for the most part. And then beyond that, to make it more palatable, particularly for the business community, there are several buy right ways that you can increase the amount of parking you have on your property. So uh, you can have a little bit of additional parking if you incorporate some bioretention on your property, if, if the, the additional spaces are built with pervious pavers, if you, you plant some additional uh, landscaping trees to try to mitigate that urban heat island effect that surface parking lots are so guilty of, that was ultimately successfully adopted. Yeah, congratulations. So I know that, you know, for advocates, maybe people listening to this who are really passionate about, you know, building up the urban fabric and building stronger towns and all those sorts of things. 
they probably, you know, see a change like parking minimum re- uh, requirement removal and think like, okay, the minute you do it, like the, everything is, the skies are going to open up and everything's going to be wonderful right. in your city. And I'm guessing that that change takes a little bit longer just for like new developments to come in and new businesses to see like, oh, now we actually could get started. So what's the process been like to see the impacts over time since 2015? Well, it's been it's been uh, kind of anticlimactic in a good and a bad way. Uh, in a good way, it's been anticlimactic in that the ordinance was successfully implemented. Uh, businesses that need parking can still build parking, and businesses that don't need parking aren't building parking. The market is truly driving it. Uh, we have those those administrative allowances that we've empowered staff to 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 give to businesses if they want to expand the amount of parking. Uh, and if they want more than that, they can go to our planning commission for variances, uh, which will provide some relief. So there's due process if people want more parking. The, the downside or the negative anticlimactic part of it is, is we've not seen our, our our big surface parking lots in downtown ripped up. Uh, some of them we have uh, talked about or we are in the process of turning one of them into a, a big civic center or a civic space rather. Uh, but even then, most of the parking spaces are being replaced one for one in a municipal parking deck. So in that sense, like I said, it's, it's, we have seen new businesses appear that couldn't be there before. Uh, a lot of restaurants in particular, since they tend to be very parking heavy and it can be crippling uh, on an urban site to try to find that much parking. Um, a lot of CPAs and small business owners. But other than that, yeah, it's, a, it, it's, it's facilitated some, some interesting conversations we've had with uh, uh, even corporate entities, uh, where there are still some corporate entities that really want more parking, more and more parking. We get to flip the script on a lot of conversations we've had with uh, some some big users who, uh, like like Walmart, who are considering actually incorporating uh, more of a delivery process for giving for for getting their goods to to people rather than actually coming to the store. And so Walmart has recognized that something like fifteen to twenty five percent of their parking is just unnecessary. Like not, not we're not even talking about Black Friday and, and Christmas Eve, but they just it's unnecessary, and they're looking at opportunities for selling pad sites out, things like that, and it just makes that conversation a lot easier. We're not here to stand in the way; we're here to to absolutely encourage them. Let's let's return that property to our, our tax base. Let's let's in, a, in an even better world try to put some housing right next to those services. In that regard, it still is interesting that it takes some people out of or by surprise. Uh, it tends to be the the, the out-of-state or out-of-region developers, though, who uh, it gives pause to. Yeah, if, if Walmart is even, like, starting to rethink how much parking they need, that feels like a good sign that our municipalities across the country are starting to see that they really don't need this much parking. But as you've said, yeah, it takes time to undo the mistakes of the past, uh, having, like, paved over so much of our our downtowns and main streets. Yeah, having grown up, grown up in Tulsa, I, I, I saw that in spades. It was very sad getting older and older and seeing the amazing Art Deco buildings that are there and then understanding that that represented a modicum of what was there and that just dozens and dozens of buildings have been torn down and replaced with generous amounts of surface parking. Yeah, I think the point about some desire to preserve historic buildings and like historic architecture that you were making at the beginning is also really valuable here. Like if those spaces, which didn't have parking spots when they were first built are suddenly required to have them in order for them to get filled, 
that's a major issue. And yeah, could either mean that building is torn down or just that it's sitting vacant and that's not good for anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Stored structures don't do well when they're vacant. Are there any um, success stories that that you can point to about like new restaurants that have been able to open or other new businesses or uh, housing that's been built? Yeah. I mean, to, to the topic of historic structures, there's a restaurant that's in a former, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but I think it's a former Pontiac dealership, perhaps for a little bit of extra irony there in our downtown area. And it's a beautiful old building. And they've turned into a very successful restaurant, Atlas Lounge, that would not have been able to set up as a restaurant otherwise. I think they have between them and the the building next to them, they might have four or five parking spaces between the two properties. But there is just an abundant amount of on-street parking that the city has built. Uh, It was our first experiment with back-end parking, which that may have rankled more people than getting rid of the non-residential parking standards, if you want to see a fight. That, that's a good example. Um, again, it's mostly been restaurants. Uh, we have seen uh, in, in recent months, actually, seen some challenges. We had a, a restaurant that was built uh, basically predicated on the idea that it didn't have any parking. And, and they had put a lot of uh, a, a lot of their planning on on, on just the availability of, of offsite parking lots that weren't really managed and, and were free to the public. And as the economy has increasingly improved and those parking lots are being redeveloped or closed or turned into pay parking lots, they have found it a little bit harder uh, to, to get the parking. But uh, the fact remains, uh, that's if you're willing to walk two or three blocks in Fayetteville, you, you can find parking, not just parking, but free parking. Yeah, that change takes some time to adjust to for sure. Have you seen any positive changes? And maybe it's too early to say, but... Um, like increase in, you know, the tax base and tax value per acre in, in the downtown as more spaces can be filled with, you know, productive structures instead of just empty parking lots. It, it is probably too early to say. And another odd nuance of Arkansas compared to some states is the municipalities here are a lot of our conversation is focused on on sales tax dollars and our concerns and our analysis. And so while we always do have property taxes in the back of our mind, because it's it's a mechanism to fund our schools and, and uh, some county work or county public works programs, it's not necessarily what we focus on the most. I think what we have used our property tax or property tax information most readily for, and this fits into the theme, is when we want to demonstrate to developers who are on the fence about what kind of project they want to do, whether it's, again, auto-centric or, or perhaps more urban, uh, we're able to actually show them the property tax information, not by parcel, but by square footage of a piece of property. Uh, and, and, and citywide, whether it's residential or commercial, uh, the more dense and intense you can get uses, the more uh, it contributes to the financial stability of a city. What are some of the uh, projects that you're working on, you know, whether parking related or not, that you're um, excited for, for the future of Fayetteville, either, you know, this year or next year? Oh, we've got a lot of things going on. I think one of the most interesting ones that I'm excited about is uh, we're looking at adopting a, 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 a pattern zoning book or pre-approved building design program. I've heard different terms used for them, but at its, at its core, 
Uh, we're, we're working with a, an architecture and planning firm to develop a set of building plans that will be readily available to the public. And it fits into our infill goal, which is specifically stated to be we're supposed to encourage appropriate infill. And so the goal is to try to get some more contextually sensitive building designs and also have those in a wider variety than, uh, than we've typically seen built. Uh, the city's development code up until the last year or two had some unfortunate artificial constraints, not parking related, but actually stormwater and, and tree preservation related where uh, we had incorporated a lot of exemptions for single and two family homes where everything else was subject to the full breadth of our development standards. And so what you get is what you get is exactly what you make easy to build. So we were getting a lot of duplexes and single family homes, uh, which just, as you can see nationally, it's, it's not necessarily what we need as a country right now. We need more housing diversity rather than, than, than pushing developers towards just trying to maximize the size of the one or two units that they can build easily, encourage them to maximize the number of units they can build. Uh, so not parking related again, but I'm excited about it. One thing that we've not been brave enough to bite off and, and may not in the, anywhere in the near future is, is what to do about our residential parking standards, which we still have very firmly in place. Again, it is a college town. So parking is a I mean, perennial issue. It doesn't even give it enough due. It is a constant conversation in the city. We, we were able to incorporate uh, ways for developers to administratively reduce the amount of residential parking they have to build. Uh, if they're within a quarter mile of a transit stop, uh, they can reduce it a certain percent. If they add, they can substitute bike racks for, uh, for parking spaces one for one. They can substitute motorcycle scooter spaces one for one, which those motorcycle scooter spaces are about a third the size of a parking space. And, and, and here anyways, it's a, a lot of scooter use among college students. So it's, it's not, it's not eliminating those standards altogether. And that may be a, a hill a lot of too many people are willing to die on right now, but we've been able to get it so that a typical development could reduce their residential parking by over a third if all those exemptions or reductions are used. Got it. Residential, the next horizon. What advice would you give for somebody listening that is interested in trying to persuade their city to um, remove some sort of parking minimum, especially commercial? I think the most important things I've seen here are, other than having experienced it work out just fine, is the, the empowerment that our ordinance gave our staff to work with developers, both adding and removing parking, uh, without them having to go to a public hearing. Because that's where a lot of the pushback comes from, is from the development community and anything that adds time or unpredictability makes them more, more likely to oppose a proposal. Um, on the other side, uh, I, I think it's very safe to say that businesses do not build where they can't accommodate parking. I mean, it truly is a market-driven, a market-driven need, and we've definitely seen that play out. It's a, that that is probably the hardest one to convince uh, elected or appointed officials of, because it's you're, you're suggesting a counterfactual, like some something that's not where the, the place where we are right now. We have definitely seen that play out in real time every year. Some people get variances, like usually the big corporate fast food chains. Um, some people build as little or no parking as they can. And we've not had, but like I said, I think one issue I can think of in the last seven years, uh, which I think speaks to how successful it's been. 
Well, thank you so much, Jonathan and Chris, for coming on the show and sharing about you guys' experience in Fayetteville of um, getting rid of some of those parking minimums. Great to hear. I appreciate your interest. I'm glad to talk about it. All right. Again, I will make sure to share our parking map. It's got the whole country. It's interactive. And you can see exactly which cities and towns, including yours, have eliminated parking minimums or are making progress towards doing that. We've also got a ton of resources on this topic in our action lab. I'll share links to that. And then finally, I will share the link to a great Sightline Institute article that talks all about um, this process in Fayetteville and kind of how they went about it and some of the results beyond what we even talked about today. Thank you, as always, to our Strong Towns members. We had a bunch of new folks join us in the last couple of weeks during a member drive. Thanks especially, shout out to those people, and of course, shout out to the people who have been members for the long haul supporting this movement. If you'd like to join that group of fantastic folks and support this podcast, head to strongtowns.org slash membership. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.